0: Welcome to The Last Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and welcome back. Ricky. I haven't seen you in so long.
1: Hello. It's good to be back.
0: You've been globetrotting. We won't say where. Undisclosed locations.
1: I have been quite a lot of places, but I'm back, back in the U.S., officially back from all the book tour stuff. But, of course, there's a bunch of new events that are popping up here, there, and everywhere now in the future. So, it's exciting stuff.
0: Congratulations. And I know you're diving headlong into the next one, which we won't talk about yet, I'm sure, mm-hmm. but it sounds exciting. Before I get to anything else, uh, though, as we were talking about off air, you somehow don't have Spotify, but I imagine most of our listeners do. Spotify yesterday sent to our listeners, all listeners of Spotify, Spotify rap that tells you at the end of the year, what you listen to most. And my request of our audience is if Lost Debate Show is on your top five, which that it'll tell you It'll give you a thing you could share to your Instagram stories, post about it. You can tag me if you want. I'm Ravi M. Gupta. I'll repost it. But it helps us with promotion. And you could also tag the Branch Media on Instagram and we'll repost it as well. And it's a good way to just tell people what you're listening to and help drive more people to this show. And Ricky, we have quite a show today. We're gonna talk about something a little different on AI Not the jobs that are destroyed by AI, but the ones created by it. Uh, Then we're going to talk about uh, two new studies of charter schools that shed light on which states are getting school choice right. And then we're going to talk about the gene editing technology CRISPR and how it might be delivering on its bold promises. We'll discuss an exciting breakthrough on that. But yes, let's talk about AI. A year ago this week, wow, only a year ago, OpenAI released ChatGPT.
1: That seems so much more recently to me.
0: Does it? Man, yeah. I, I, it's like hard to imagine a world without it at this point.
1: I don't even use it. I still haven't figured it out.
0: Well, I'll get to, I, I play around with it quite a bit. And this is why this discussion is really exciting to me, which, which I'll get to. I think Joanna Stern at the Wall Street Journal had quite a great lead in, and, and I'm gonna I'm going to read this and then kick it to you. So she said, my father was a prompt en- engineer like his father before him. I come from a long line of people who toiled day and night chatting with generative AI chatbots. Okay, not true. Prompt engineering is a totally new job that would have sounded crazy even a year ago, but it can pay six-figure salaries to people who extract the best results from the mysterious artificial intelligence black boxes that are now part daily life, end quote. Ricky, over to you. Are you training now at Columbia University in the, in the prompt engineering degree program? <laughs>
1: Um, unfortunately, I don't think we have one of those quite yet, but it's interesting. And on the prompt engineer front, I imagine, so essentially this is you, you are being paid to interact with AI and to kind of manipulate it in a way that it will become more effective for users in the future and to figure out how, how the input and the output relate to one another, which is still amazing. Well, I to prefer me, how...
0: collaborate. I have a collaborative relationship with my AI. I don't like to manipulate it. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. Are you going to get an AI girlfriend or something? Is that in your picture?
0: <laughs> I actually do think there is, there are technologies now that basically do that. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I think like anybody who's used these technologies before knows that you actually need to develop experience with it because it's it's a little tricky to get exactly what you want out of it.
1: Mhm. Yeah, definitely. And I think um but the idea that this is like a long-term sustainable career path is not really something that I think is accurate. I mean, it's it's paying up to $250,000 now, but I think it's something that like if you're good at it, you're very quickly making yourself obsolete. I think at a certain point in time there's going to be like so much auto-generative AI and like AI specializing itself to the prompts that are coming into it to the point that I just think this is like we're at this this early phase of AI generation and, and development where we're refining it now, but then I think it's just rapid clip going to be refining itself effectively. But um this this Wall Street Journal peg was clever. And it also it's bouncing off of this World Economic Forum report, Jobs of Tomorrow, Large Language Models and Jobs, um, which goes through um like the least stable the the most kind of average and, and most growing jobs in the, the age of AI. Um, and among the least stable were insurance underwriters, web developers, sales agents, and authors and journalists. So that's fun for me. The ones that are just kind of about the same and perhaps won't be affected one way or another are data specialists, human resources managers, manufacturing and construction but then, of course, the growing jobs are all like, to me, they sound like miserable, dystopian, like we're all just going to become slaves to this technology, like prompt engineer, database analyst, machine learning specialist, database professionals. Mathematicians is the only one that um, I'm like, well, it sounds like maybe there's a little bit of room for humanity still. But generally, I feel like this reminds me of the like, you're going to own nothing and be happy. You'll be a slave to the, the technology and be happy.
0: I have like a mixed view of the future on this, but I do think that people in most professions want to become proficient at this. And the Wall Street Journal article, I think helpfully points us in the direction of a course at Vanderbilt University called Prompt Engineering for Chat GPT, which is a Vanderbilt University course. You could sign up for $49. I actually just signed up today. And, you know, every year I do like a a deep dive into something like a skill or something. This past year has been novel writing. I'm pretty sure this coming year, I'm going to do something AI related just because I think both intellectually, I'm curious about it, but also I think most people in most professions, although like you might not want to be a prompt engineer as your only job. I actually do think proficiency in these tools and a a constant awareness of how they're developing is actually going to be something that separates the, the excellent from the merely good at a lot of professions in the next few years.
1: Yeah, I also think... There's so much buzz and concern in the journalism world. And I don't fully share it, honestly. Like, I I think that what AI is going to do is, and I've probably said this before on the podcast, but I think that AI is going to disrupt this um, kind of regurgitation news cycle that seems to happen in the age of the internet where output is everything. And, you know, one person has a scoop and then everyone spins a story off of it, which, you know, sometimes a spin story can can actually be insightful and and add a new element. But a lot of the times, I mean, I think that a lot of blogs or, or smaller outlets will literally just effectively rewrite and slightly tinker something that someone else wrote. And I think that sort of work is going to be a thing of the past because any outlet going forward, I think could use AI to aggregate things that are happening out in the world. However, I don't see a place for AI actually disrupting meaningful original journalism where you have to be out... Out on the ground, or get the scoop from a person, or talk them to the point where they give you the quote that is actually really compelling. And that sort of stuff, I think, can be like talented journalists will have all the friction removed to actually doing that versus just being in the kind of clickbait rat race a little bit. So I think, yes, I I imagine that the raw amount of just like writing time will probably be cut down considerably in the industry. However, I think that actually does free up journalists to get back out on the ground and not just be in that kind of digitized grind as well.
0: Yeah, I, I I have a front row seat into this in a different context, which is for four years now, I've run this fitness group of, of mostly friends that's now grown every year to the point now where what used to be on spreadsheets, I'm, I've been in the hunt for the past few months of building out its own app and its own website and talking to web developers and branding people and all of that. And what I've realized is a couple things. One is on the branding front. I was getting quotes at fifteen, twenty thousand dollars to do logos and like design the front end of the website and yada yada yada. And I was able to find AI tools that did that for a few hundred bucks and better. Honestly, I actually tested out the logos, paid the sort of basic amount for a logo from a um, from one person that was really highly regarded on one of these like Upwork like sites, and then I used an AI generation site, which was. Honestly, crazy awesome. I'll put it in the show notes. I forget the name of it, but it's one of the fun, most fun things you could do if you have ventures. It's like It gives you lightning speed ability to create really high quality logos and branding and then get your color codes and all that and then spit that into whatever it is, WordPress or whatever, and turn that to website really, really quickly. And there are sites that do this now with pitch decks. Uh, the front end on on data analysis charts and graphs right like things that usually require a team before the second part of this is that the whole process of creating the back end data systems that i need which are actually quite complicated and then feeding it into like a skin that presents to the world ai has made that code free too so when i'm talking to people who would previously charge me $50,000 to build a website now they're charging way, way less than that, because they know and I know that they're not building new code. And that's bad for them, but makes it easier to start a business. And I found that entire experience really fascinating. And it all gets to like, and and I'm not that proficient in it. The more proficient I am in those tools, the more power I have to then start that business and make that business successful and do it in a cost-effective way. And that's what gets at, you don't need to be an expert, but I think just being aware of where these tools are and knowing how things are changing rapidly could save you a lot of money and time and puts you at a significant advantage.
1: Yeah, although that means that the, the scraps of job possibilities going forward will be AI prediction analyzer, AI input and output manager, AI compliance manager, AI machine learning specialist, which the World Economic Forum predicts will grow by like 39% in the next five years, which is actually not as large as I would have expected it to be. But I mean, sure, it frees up creative capacity and I, I am, Bullish in some ways and how it can it can spur innovation and make it more frictionless. However, I don't think that's a really lovely society to live in In and the rapidly in the near future where a considerable amount of the economy is based on propping up this like mysterious godlike machine and I don't know. The World Economic Forum always freaks me out. I guess maybe I'm just, I have a negative bias where they just want us to eat bugs and rent all of our belongings well, and, for, yeah, yeah. And, and worship at the altar of the AI black box.
0: I think that, and I said this on OpenAI Thoughts last week, but I don't think we can stop it, right? So I think the question is, how do you thrive in a world where it exists? And I think there are two phases. One is the, the next phase where I think AI augmented work is going to be key. And I think the winners are going to be people who can deploy the the AI to help make themselves better at human tasks. I think the phase that comes after that is the scary phase where I really do think like wholesale industries and jobs will become largely non-human dependent. Uh, I'm hoping that that is as far away as possible. But you want to win this interim phase. And I think the way you win the interim phase is understanding the tools, either at a proficient and maybe even at a mastery level, which doesn't mean that you have to be technically, you don't have to create this stuff, you just have experience using it and then you have to monitor the rapid development of this technology as it happens. Mm-hmm. Two is, you then have to have something on top of that, whether it's an industry awareness, soft skills, creativity, whatever your industry is, right? You have to have something, some other thing to bring to the table to sort of so good they can't ignore you level of, of skill and excellence, on top of that to make you excellent. And to use your journalism analogy, if you're a really good shoe leather reporter, but you also know AI tools that can help you analyze data sets that you get better, do Freedom of Information Act requests better, build your own website better, put out your video and podcast faster to get your information out there without a big team and do it in a cost-effective way. You do all that kind of stuff, right? On top of being a good shoe leather reporter, you're gonna be better than just a mere person who's breaking really good investigative Stories, you're probably gonna be that person's boss. So mm-hmm. that's where I think the winners come in this next phase. Now, am I, I I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit frightened by it, but I don't think that really helps me or anybody else. I think you just have to kind of have a theory about what you can do excellent in this world and and sprint towards it.
1: Mm. Yeah. And I have to I have to go back. I have to amend one thing that I said, which I don't know how to really use Chat GPT effectively without. I feel like every time I interact with it while I'm writing, it makes me feel like I'm gonna get in trouble or do something that's like unethical. So I just don't. <laughs> yes. Um, but one thing that I do use that I think is so like a, a great test case for taking an aspect of my job that was kind of menial labor out of it was um I send whenever I do an interview with someone, I'll ask if I can record it and then I just slack it to myself and it will come up with a transcription within 30 seconds, which is something that like I used to have to Pause the recording. Write half a sentence. Unpause it, and, and now I can just like literally read through everything that we we've discussed. And within I don't know, probably shaves an hour or two off of the the raw amount of time that it, it's required to do an interview article, which is pretty incredible.
0: Yeah, I I think ChatGPT has gotten a lot better in the past three weeks. Interesting as the company has struggled because of the the new features that they've rolled out that allow you to search contemporary information. So I think a good example of and they allow you to upload documents, right? So a good example is I'm I'm in the, the final stages of finishing my novel this year, and I have a human who's editing with me, and she's really good. And she, uh, in response to some early chapters, was like, "All right, one thing I want you to focus on in later chapters is, which had already been drafted, is show don't tell," right? Like a writing sort of technique. And so I I upload my document into ChatGPT, and I say, "Hey, find moments." in this document where I'm telling and not showing, and then spits out uh, like a little memo. And you can actually have it embody a personality, which is actually a good part of, like not even a personality, but a role. You could say, play the role of an editor and spot for me issues where I'm telling, not showing. And then it does that. Uh, And then if you try, right? Like I ask it, well, what would it look like to show? And then it spits stuff out. That stuff is absolutely not useful like it's not good, you also run into the problems that you're talking about if you put that in there, then uh, it changes the nature of your work in ways that crosses ethical boundaries. But there's no world in which having it spot those issues for you isn't any different than having an editor do it in terms of ethics, right? If it spots it, it spots it. You still do the work to edit it. And that's where I think things are going. Now, I do think people are gonna full-on, and some people have, full-on written AI-generated novels already. I saw one article about it already where a guy did it in response to Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin challenging him to. And I do think at a certain point, there's going to be AI disclosures on the front of books saying, hey, I, I used or did not use. And I think people will be comfortable deciding whether they wanted AI to be involved in a book or not. Yeah, And I think we'll treat works differently, whether they've used AI or not.
1: You just said one of the most dystopian things that I think I've heard so far in this podcast, where you said, I had a human that was editing with me, like as though there's this two-class binary system. Yes. I don't know. That freaks yeah. me out.
0: I don't know what to A say, human. but I mean, I do think this was the beginning of... of A biological organism. She, here's the thing. She is infinitely better than anything ChatGPT does on in terms of issue spotting or editing or anything like that. But she's also like cost money, right? So she's an editor that my agents use and so I have to be very limited in like the amount of time I spend with her and so basically she looks at a few chapters she spots it she sends it right and then I have to decide what to do with that the GPT saves me a lot of time in combing back over things and finding stuff it's also like easy to find like you could do things like more on data I think than you can on creative stuff now uh, and I'm I'm just not as good at the data front, but one of the things that I'm doing, for instance, on that startup that I was talking about is I'm creating a, like in the past, we've kind of informally tracked everything from workout metrics to blood work and things like that that people share to the extent they want. And what the G- GPT is, is allowing me to do is quickly turn that into an algorithm that adjusts over time based on new studies that arrive. Because what happened was I was... In the, all the chaos of OpenAI, they created this that you can create your own GPTs and train them in certain ways. And so, what I'm doing is feeding one GPT all studies based on the biomarkers that we track. And as new studies come, I give those to the, the GPT. And then it helps amend the algorithm I'm using to track what's important and what's not and relatively rank people because it kind of spits out a score for people saying, hey, if your HbA1c is this level, it means this in terms of your longevity biomarkers, et cetera. And so, as the studies change, the algorithm changes. And that stuff is really powerful and awesome and, and honestly, better than anything I could have done on my own.
1: I'm still in the beginning phases of the longevity sort of world. I'm now at the. Well, 50s you're so where young. Huberman, where Huberman has convinced me to look at the sun for a little bit in the morning. And that, that's it. That's enough. For you me.
0: got plenty of time. When I was your <laughs> age, I was staying up. You know, I I used to, when I was working at the United States, I was talking to somebody the other day, I would go on the Obama campaign. We would go out to like 1, 2 AM and show up to work at like 7 AM the next day. Like it was nothing. I'm not going to say we did that every day, but we were super humans back then. And and I would eat whatever I wanted and nothing would change. And I think once you get into your mid thirties, everything changes. And that's when I think people start consuming that information more. You have to really dial in at that point to produce the same kind of I think there's also a dangerous
1: rabbit hole where you can start talking about training a- AI models for biomarkers and, you know, if there's, a, if there's a test case for just living your life and and wishing yourself well, it's my father who's like 86 and is just cruising through life, made 100% of wheat thins and, and nothing can stop him.
0: Well, let's talk when you're 35, Ricky, and then you'll see <laughs> it gets harder every day. Let's shift course to this charter school study. So there was a few major, major charter school studies that have come out in the past few weeks. Ricky, why don't we start with this University of Arkansas study?
1: Yeah. So this report showed that charter schools have bigger gains per dollar spent on students. Um, They looked at public and charter schools in nine cities and compared them across the country. And they found that even though they get less money, they do perform better relative to the dollar. Um, and just on on net, net measures as well. So the financial differences that they found were the average charter school in these nine cities got $20,000 per people annually um, versus the average public school worked out to $29,000 per uh, people, which is a 70% difference. So that's the, or a, a difference between the two of 70%, which is considerable. So the outcomes that they found was that the charter schools earned more per dollar invested, that they were slightly better at standardized tests, graduation rates, college enrollment, and positive behavior. The caveat here being that it's a 0.05 to 0.07 standard deviation difference, which is not enormous by any stretch. But when you take that into account based on the difference in the amount of money that was net going in and the funding gap going in, that actually does become pretty considerable. Um, and I think in that study, the most uh, tangible figure that I saw was for a public school student, every $1 spent on their education equated to a $3.94 of income later in life versus every $1 spent on the education of someone who came from a charter school equated to a $6.25 income later in life. So. When you look at it through that lens and, and you look at it, even though the standard deviation numbers are pretty tiny and the standardized testing numbers are pretty tiny, the fact that they're still outpacing them even by a small margin in spite of the fact that they get $9,000 less per people annually is, is impressive.
0: Yeah, I think a good example for this was uh, Indianapolis, which students in charter schools receive $8,000 less per pupil than the local district yet made more progress in reading and math. And through this analysis, they found that in Indianapolis, every dollar spent on charters returned 106% more uh, than money invested in the city's traditional public schools. And, And to be clear, the study actually concludes that more money spent in traditional public schools does equate to higher earnings in and of itself. But it's saying that more money spent in a charter equates to even more lifetime earnings. And actually Camden also had really exceptionally high results. And those are the two that really ranked the highest, was Camden and Indianapolis. Camden had 131% ROI advantage. Uh, New Orleans had incredible results as well, but the data was incomplete there just because their charters make up such, like a majority of schools in New Orleans, so they didn't have anything really to compare it to. But when you compare New Orleans to other charters, new orleans does really well so you take those three cities together new orleans camden and indianapolis They're for people who are in the know those are very important states as it relates to public policy charters new orleans was charterized overnight in response to katrina and uh, we we spent some time in the citizen stewart show that'll air next week on this but new orleans is the only example of a district basically becoming charter overnight and that's you know, the fact that there are, the charter results there are exceeding other districts other than Indianapolis that are other high-performing districts themselves, I think really is a validation of the New Orleans model. And then you have Indianapolis, which has been this, this very careful model where philanthropists, public policy professionals, elected officials... And operators all decided to prioritize a city that's like maybe not as sexy as New Orleans in terms of the talent, and maybe not in the sort of time and place that New Orleans was during the Katrina era when it was able to attract all these like sort of you know high flying Ivy Leaguers. And they still have been able to produce incredible results through that level of coordination. And so I think this is like really really positive. And then you take Camden, and we'll put in the show notes. I interviewed the the guy who is the superintendent of Camden, um, Paymon, who led the turnaround of what had been one of the worst performing school districts in the country like a true hellscape educationally and now has turned it into one of the most successful turnarounds in the history of education uh, and you can you can listen to that episode to just hear just that really remarkable story there this is actually tells you a lot about what works within this the system and you compare that to some of the other places we can get to that that haven't been doing as well with fostering a strong charter market you could say all right this gives us something to grab on
1: and what would you say, like, across the the cities that you've engaged with has been the most impressive, just like on an adoption front with charter schools?
0: I mean, it's tricky because there are different types of environments. So, so let's contrast two of them, right? Boston versus New Orleans. They're exactly the opposite lessons. Boston, because of political pushback, has very few charters, but very, very and it has a long history of charters, though. And because of that, because of the cap on charter schools that existed in Boston, uh, you had a series of really, really high quality operators who couldn't grow. So those schools are like the best schools I've ever seen in terms of one school at a time charters, but they're just not many of them. Uh, And so the lesson there you could take, and Doug Harris has written about this from Tulane, there is an inverse relationship between the amount of charters a state allows and the quality. But the problem is like one to 10 charters isn't doing enough good for kids if you really want this to have systemic impact. So you have to find the sweet spot of growing charters enough while also having quality. And that's why New Orleans is instructive because New Orleans is the opposite of bus And it chartered almost 100% overnight in response to Katrina, yet has really, really strong results. New Orleans continues, continues to be my favorite place for charters in that sense because it really truly is systemic impact. And what, what wound up happening in New Orleans is the results almost immediately were better for kids than pre-Katrina. But there were a lot of, I think, valid critiques about the human capital environment, not hiring enough locals in New Orleans. There were issues around special education coordination, transportation coordination, common applications, traditions within schools like the marching bands and the names of schools and the long history of New Orleans. And what's really awesome about New Orleans is that the very, very capable, impressive leaders I saw down there took that feedback and listened and in, in basically addressed almost all of those concerns and now have created a more equitable uh, organized system in response to that feedback. And so I think that's amazing. But I think most people who follow this stuff will point to Indianapolis and say, you can't really repeat New Orleans, but Indianapolis is replicable. Like it was a, it was a staged growth model. It continues to be a staged growth model. And actually is when you compare it to Nashville, which is where I spent a lot of my time, they, they look on the surface similarly. High-performing charters, gradual growth, philanthropic buy-in, some political buy-in. They kind of started the same way, but what happened in Nashville was much more vigorous pushback politically, and I would say uh, a little bit of sloppy growth uh, in Nashville. Like a lot of our networks, I would say, were under a tremendous pressure to grow faster than any of us were capable of doing. and. We took a lot of money, both from the federal government and from philanthropists. And probably a lot of us started twice as many schools as we should have. And that sixth, seventh school is almost to a school not as strong as the first school that we started. And I think that there needed to be, I think, probably a combination of more philanthropic support to make that happen and a bit of a a tolerance for slower growth. Uh, And that's a long discussion because like the financing of facilities in Nashville was a disaster, which I think Indianapolis has gotten better. So a lot of us were chasing growth because the district wasn't giving us facilities. This gets to the funding issue that the University of Arkansas is talking about. Like in Nashville, I don't know what the number is, but we receive significantly less money when you take into facilities and transportation than the district schools. And so what winds up happening is we're taking philanthropy to grow, but also so that we can Fund the kind of back office support that a district would have for schools. Like people who help write curriculum and, and deal with a lot of the things that any sort of network of schools will deal with. And we're kind of using that philanthropy meant for growth to fund the kind of services that we need for our schools. But then the, the bill becomes due on that growth. You got to do that growth. And then you start taxing mm-hmm. your schools, your existing schools on that. that. That's what happened to me and almost to a person to every single operator that I knew who grew in Nashville and similar places. So that's a long answer Ricky to your question but I think I think it's instructive. I think a lot of people look at Indianapolis now and I'm I'm planning to make a trip there in the next year as like the gold standard right now. Hmm.
1: Okay, so the bottom line of the the Arkansas study is a dollar in in public schools roughly equates to $4 out in in earnings. A dollar in, in charter schools is a, is $6 roughly in earnings. So take us through the second study that also came out.
0: Yeah, so this one is Paul Peterson and, and Dan Shaquille who wrote in education next, and I would say I'm I'm a little bit less. First of all, and, and no offense to these guys, I, they didn't exactly explain things very well in this article in terms of what their methodology was. It's it's I think a kind of a soup of jargon, but from what I understand, the Arkansas study took historic funding levels and then largely based their analysis on a combination of the NAEP, which is a national assessment that's given every two years to a representative sample of students in both charters and district schools. So it gives you state-by-state analysis. They took that data and then the Stanford study, which we've talked about before, which is called Credo, which in my opinion is the most rigorous sort of metric for charter school performance and has traditionally been used both by charter opponents and proponents as sort of like the measuring stick of charter performance. And it uses a statistical match to say, all right, you, Ricky, attend the, lost debate charter school, and then we're gonna find out everything we can about you, your demographics, your prior academic performance, what neighborhood you live in, your family income, and then we're gonna match you to a student in a traditional public school and then chart how the two of you are doing. That is the most rigorous. Mm-hmm. The University of Arkansas used just NAEP. They didn't use Credo from what I understand. And I think that's one limitation. The second limitation is because they use NAEP and not as statistical match. They're, ch- they're comparing charters against each other, but not comparing charters against the best alternative that that student has in mm-hmm. that district. And what they found is overall top performing states are Alaska, Colorado, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New York, Oklahoma, and New Jersey. Uh, the lowest ranked states are Hawaii, Tennessee, Michigan, Oregon, and Pennsylvania. I would say Tennessee is an outlier there because by most measures, Tennessee is one of the high highest performing charter sectors in the country and so I think that was an outlier and especially if you look at credo and things like that from the last time I looked at that data Tennessee was high flying and I think this is one of those areas where they're not looking at the like the kid in you know in Memphis what is the alternative to the school that they're attending versus like how is that kid in Memphis performing relative to other states the Hawaii number I think is a although Hawaii is a low performing network the the authors of the study were careful to say that, there was a weird thing around, part of what they do is compare students to other students demographically across the country. And they were grouping together native Hawaiians with Asian Pacific Islander categories in ways that were messing up the data. But they said when they pulled away that data, Hawaii kind of moved up the rankings a little bit. But I think the, the biggest like surprise there is Alaska is doing really well. And when I look at this data, I'm like, wow, I need to go figure out what the heck is going on in Alaska because you you never hear about the Alaska charter sector at all. I've honestly this is the first time I've ever even thought about the Alaska charter sector.
1: And how large is it relative to other states?
0: I don't know, honestly.
1: I think that would be probably among all states the one that would be the least helpful in terms of like extrapolating nationwide outputs. I don't know. It just it, it feels but perhaps I'm wrong.
0: So there are 54... For school districts in Alaska, charter schools account for 32 of the state's public schools. So they have 32 charters in Alaska. That's not a lot. It's not tiny for a state as small as Alaska. So that's still a yeah. statistically significant amount. So if you're listening to this and you're from Alaska, send in a, a, a note. Or if you've worked in Alaska, maybe we'll maybe I'll make a trip out there. It's one of the. It's, I think it's one of two states I have not been to in this in this country. So I will. I, I would love to find an excuse to go out there and see what's happening out there probably in the summer or when closest to the summer I can while seeing schools. But yeah, I would say that this, this education next, this, this report published in education next, I find much, much less helpful than the university of Arkansas uh, study. And so when I'm kind of ranking these for people who really want to walk out on this, you can, the university of Arkansas study, I think is really good for policymakers because what it does is say, how can you best use public dollars to advance the outcomes for children? For children generally, that is a question for policymakers. I think credo in and of itself—if you if you just take into account credo—that is a, and that's comparing like a kid in a district. How is a kid in your city doing when it goes to a charter versus if that kid were to go to a traditional public school? That is like if you just take credo alone, that's good for parents in a city figuring out where to send their kids. The education stuff published in education next, I think, is like probably helpful if you're a parent. Trying to decide where to move, and you really feel strongly about sending your kid to a charter school, and you're like, "All right, I'm I'm thinking of moving to Indianapolis or Nashville. I got a job offer at each, and for reasons or whatever, like I, I can't really concoct." You are completely not interested in sending your kids to a traditional district school. You just want to know how the charter sector performs there relative to the national charter sector. Then Education Next can help you there. So very limited, limited sort of role for that data, but very interesting. It's always helpful to you know, update assumptions on this kind of stuff. So kudos to everybody involved here.
1: Okay, let's talk about another place of very promising innovation, which is CRISPR, which is short for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats, um, which is effectively bringing science fiction to real life and editing genes in already living organisms. So effectively, it's like a little genetic pair of scissors that cuts and pastes a specific part of DNA that's been isolated as um, faulty or or causing some sort of ailment. And it does it across billions of blood cells. Like it's, it's absolutely incredible technology that only a decade ago was just a concept in an academic paper. And yet today we now have one of the first trials in living, breathing human beings who are struggling from sickle cell anemia, which is effectively just like a single mutation trait that we've identified and isolated, that this is the gene that's off that is causing people to suffer tremendously throughout their lifetimes with debilitating symptoms. And they've used, uh, Vertex Pharmaceuticals and CRISPR Therapeutics have done a trial with 30 patients and out of 29 out of the 30 have gone from having multiple pain crises annually to zero in just one year. so effectively this gene therapy has rewritten their genetic code in, in a specific and isolated way versus what more crudely we would do in the past or or people with the means to be able to do it who knew that they had the recessive trait in their their genome would, potentially do in vitro and and select an embryo that doesn't have that same trait. but this is a way that we can help people who already have been born with with a, an ailment and also prevent having to do that that whole in vitro process as well. So the fact the rapid clip of this is incredible to me.
0: Yeah, and, and this is fascinating because this is probably the most significant advance in this technology, which is relatively new that we've ever seen. And it's it's not an accident that it was sickle cell because as you said, this is a well-identified single-site mutation. It's the adenine being replaced by the thymine. And that one mutation leads to a tremendously debilitating condition, which also happens to affect a population, a, a very high percentage of African population that traditionally isn't targeted by pharmaceutical companies. This has been a big critique of pharmaceutical companies. So this is a big deal. and. What's fascinating here, and, and and it is those single site mutations, and I'll get to this, that are going to be the this first wave of CRISPR advances. And what's fascinating here is they didn't correct that A to T typo. Uh, so that's coming eventually, I bet. So they didn't go in and to use the metaphor, use the scissors, cut something out and put something else in. What they did was they focused on because what what happens is with sickle cell is it creates a mutation that like affects your Body's ability to clot blood, and so instead of fixing the mutation itself, they focused on actually a workaround where they produced fetal hemoglobin, which is usually suppressed after birth, uh, and they reactivated that. And they actually wound up going through and editing specific DNA DNA of blood cells to allow your body to create that hemoglobin. And they did this at a large scale, so producing billions of blood cells using this. Uh, And once they did that, they then went in and used like a form of chemotherapy to uh, prevent the body from creating the blood cells that it didn't want. So the mutation is still there, but what it did was it activated, it used CRISPR to activate something else as a workaround and then use kind of traditional medicine to suppress the rest. You could imagine that this, and obviously you want to like, if they can find a way to do this without chemotherapy, that would be, I would say, preferable. But it seems like the results are amazing. Like people are reporting like the Atlantic, Sarah Zhang in the Atlantic, but, you know, follows this woman who's 38 years old, who's able to like live a relatively normal life after, you know, being debilitated for so long.
1: Yeah. And to be clear, the, the long-term effects are still unknown, but I think that this disease is probably a test case where a lot of people might be willing to take that risk, um, and doctors are not calling this a cure. They're, they're concerned that there could be, you know, continuing organ damage that that's not being stopped by, by the CRISPR treatment. But one thing that I, I find interesting is I, I do think in, the, in this specific single um, mutation sort of iteration, there aren't as many diseases as we might think that are common, um, just because if you think evolutionarily, if there's one gene that's faulty, that gets weeded out pretty quickly. But the interesting nuance but sickle cell anemia is, they believe, um, is historically in sub-Saharan Africa, which is where this this gene um, is the most prevalent. That having a recessive allele of it, where you have one one sickle cell trait but not the other, so your body can still clot blood properly, but you do have a portion of your blood that is sickle cell. That makes you actually more uh, more resilient and, and um, less susceptible to getting malaria. Um, and so it was selected for in the recessive version, which means that sometimes from time to time, two recessive people will have a, ch- a child with this debilitating disease that otherwise probably evolution would have taken care of. Um, so it's it's an interesting nuance. And I think that right now it's important to realize that there are definitely diseases that are less complex and, and just how they are encoded in our DNA. But the fact that within 10 years we've ended up at this point, And that UK regulators just greenlit this technology, that a panel in the US just approved it and is recommending that the FDA do the same probably within the next two weeks. And this is just the span of a decade of something that sounded entirely science fiction when it was first proposed. I think that the the long term promises and guarantees in this is is huge. Um, they're looking towards how they can lower cholesterol, how they can treat things that are not necessarily entirely genetic, like cancer and diabetes and HIV and even UTIs. So it's it's. I think this is the next frontier of medicine in a way that hasn't really been getting as much attention as I would have expected it to.
0: Yeah, I, I do think that there's going to be a golden age of treatment. And when you take this technology, and we talked about AI, there's a lot of promising developments on AI, for instance, in, in identifying pancreatic cancer, there was a study that came out that AI tools were much more effective at early detection of pancreatic cancer, which obviously is a devastating and fast-developing cancer. It you know took Steve Jobs out, for instance, and anybody you know who's been affected by it, it's like a essentially a death sentence for a lot of people. Uh, this is personal in many ways. I have a lot of family members and and I've always wondered whether, I've never gotten the test, but I have a bunch of family members who are recessive on the beta thalassemia gene, which is kind of a cousin of sickle cell. It's, it's more common in India. And Vertex has a has a identical series of studies and, and trials going on with beta thalassemia that look just as promising. Uh, and it's essentially the same kind of deal. It, it, it The recessive trait, and one of the reasons why I've always wondered what I have is I've been to Africa a few times and been in groups where everybody got malaria but me. Um, it's actually prompts me, I got to go get this tested. But but with the recessive, you get the malaria protection, but obviously when,
1: yeah.
0: um, but if you get it in its dominant form, you get all of the negative effects of thalassemia as well, which is not quite as devastating in a lot of patients as, as sickle cell anemia, but but can be really bad. But when you think about the the likely breakthroughs, right? When you think about, more, if you're listening to saying, well, what comes next here? It's, it's, it's. you're looking for diseases with, with very simple genetic origins, single site origins, right? So cystic fibrosis, DMD, hemophilia, Huntington's disease. Those are like the more simple mutations that you can, and Huntington's disease, if you know anything about it, is an absolutely horrific disease. So if you could cure that with this, that would be Even the
1: BRCA gene that that has, that women will often get mastectomies just to prevent breast cancer from would be probably a test case as well.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's what gets to like, well, what are the complex ones that are going to be harder to get to? But in, in these sort of true solution, people say cancers because most cancers are multiple genetic and environmental factors, Alzheimer's, autism spectrum disorder, heart diseases, right? Those often have complex origins, but if you look at the list of current studies and pilots underway, it includes a lot of cancers, like there's a lot of leukemia and lymphoma, tumor cancer studies, you know, there's even um, diabetes studies, like, so the, there are complex disorders being studied using CRISPR, at my sense of these, and and I don't, I don't know enough to be dangerous here, but my sense is the, they're probably working on some kind of workaround for some of these, like, instead of like, here's the one mutation that leads you to get cancer or a specific type of cancer, and we're gonna edit that out, it would say there's something about the the, the replication of the tumors or what have you uh, that, or there's some kind of endocrine mechanism that contributes to higher risk or something that they're working on. Because from what I understand of cancer, it's almost, to a cancer, a very complex series of causes. But there does seem to be a lot of work being done on cancer using CRISPR, which is exciting.
1: Well, but there, I think there also are, even with certain diseases that have tons of genetic inputs and environmental factors, there are some that have genes that are extremely highly influential relative to others, which like the breast cancer gene BRCA, I think one or something like that, that one is exceptionally high to the point that women remove their breasts preventatively. So like that could be a test case of even, even if it's not saying like, oh, we're going to cure your sickle cell anemia that is probably a preferable path for most women than having to have such an invasive surgery and, and lose an organ as a result. So I do think that even in the more complex ones, it could be without, I mean, there's also probably a dystopian slippery slope here, but there could be a world where, where we can considerably reduce the the likelihood or even certain mental disorders that like, like schizoaffective disorders and stuff, where there are genetic signals that, that demonstrate that the proclivity is just so much higher than the typical person. So, um, I think long-term we could, we could definitely work towards at least reducing risks of more complex diseases that way. But I also just want to like zoom out and say how crazy it is that like, we can just get DNA tests and find out if you have that like one weird gene that you were talking about, or like, it's just the consumer side, even as well of how much this industry has changed i think it's probably been like roughly a decade since first the first consumer dna test came out and like the amount of people that know that they have a a predisposition for something and have changed their lives to to orient their lifestyle to prevent that or the amount of people like myself included i found out i had a really wicked bad uh recessive gene that i mean it's it's so rare but i know now that if i want to reproduce with someone from Denmark that I should probably check out whether or not they also have that gene. And like that, <laughs> that sort of stuff and the amount of empowerment that we have as individuals even just to go to our doctors and say like, oh, I know I have this gene or I know I have this proclivity or I'm predisposed to, to Alzheimer's and, and what can I do to prevent that is just amazing. Like the, the rapid clip of genetic research in the past decade is wild.
0: Yeah, I agree. And and if people are looking for a good place to get uh, analysis done, there are a lot of places now where I think a lot of people have done Twenty Three and Me and sites like that, and uh, you can get it sequenced. They so, like you do like a little swab or something, you send it in, they get it sequenced. Once you get it sequenced, you could take it anywhere. And I've tested out a bunch of these Please things.
1: Please be careful with your data. Yeah, oh my obviously. God. Please stop uploading. There's going to be like bioweapons targeted at Ravi Gupta that only you are susceptible Look, to. Be careful.
0: <laughs> honestly, if if I've reached a point where um, powerful countries care that much about my, my well-being, then I've really made it uh, or lack of well-being. Uh, but the if you are so inclined and you could read all the different disclosures and protections in these different sites, the one that I've liked the most is this place called nebula.org, uh, N-E-B-U-L-A. And what they do is they, uh, and and this is what I, rec- this is for that group I was talking about for the fitness group, we kind of, I make recommendations. What they do is you can upload your, your, your like 23andMe or whatever, or you can get it sequenced through these people. But if you already have the day, you can just upload it. It's very cheap. I forget what it is. And they give you a ton of information on all of your alleles uh, and what they mean, what percentage, percentile you in, in are in terms of certain risks for certain genetic, you know, either good or bad things. It could say you're more likely to run fast or not. And, and it actually gives you links to the studies that they use as a basis for the determination. You could read more or less depending on how much information you want. And what I really like about it is if you pay an ongoing fee, they just send you emails as new studies come out that link to your, your genetics. So it could be like, oh, a new study came out that said that XYZ allele is linked to a lower risk of Parkinson's disease or something, or higher risk of Parkinson's disease, and you can like read it. And, like, obviously you only want this information. You don't, like it could freak you out, which is why a lot of places like 23andMe give you yeah. limited information. But I find it very helpful. Uh, and it, And it helps me actually take it to, like you think about like, how would you use this? Well, for instance, I am on statins. To keep my cholesterol low because South Asians, including my family members, have had historically very high cardiac uh, incidence. And I've had a lot of uncles have multiple heart attacks by my age. So I very much monitor my numbers. Now, my numbers alone were on the cusp of justifying statins, but the people at uh, One Medical were like, it doesn't quite make our cut for statins. And then I showed them my genetic report and I said, look, I'm at the 100th percentile. 100 percentile for risk of having high, I think it was uh, LP little a or one of the uh, like most important lipid risks. And they were like, okay, <laughs> we'll do it. Um, and so I think it just provides more information and allows you to be dangerous uh, with your doctors if you want to push them to give you the kind of interventions that you need. And for me, it was successful in getting them to prescribe statins for me on my insurance plan.
1: I would just say, use that with caution. I don't know. I don't start self-medicating too much. I, I also think it can really scare the life out of people in a way that might not be healthy, depending on what you find. I mean, some some genes are like, you're going to have Parkinson's when you're old. And like, do you n- want to know that?
0: Yeah, well, I, I, I do think like, but I, I do think it gives people the option to know that, right? Nobody's forcing them. It's not like the government's yeah, sequencing I you just, and sending it to you. But like, in my case, it's a perfect example. Like the monolith one medical doesn't take into account me as a person and South Asians generally, who have like among the highest cardio risks. I'd rather your
1: doctor have access to that than than you start bossing your doctor around and saying like, "Well, yeah, but that I you're describing a healthcare system
0: that doesn't exist, right? Doctors aren't would, that motivated. Yeah, but yeah.
1: we didn't even have DNA tests like ten years ago. That could exist very quickly, and I'm sure there would be a market of of health nut orthorexics like you to, to be right at the front door
0: my my read on the healthcare system is if you don't soccer mom your way to the right kind of uh, interventions early uh you're not going to get good medicine and that's like a sad reality but like doctors give you a couple minutes a, a couple times a year Max if you're lucky and have health insurance and they're not going to take the time to figure this kind of stuff out so you got to do it on your own that's my general theory right now you can't prescribe stuff on your own you can't I can't go and get a like I had a
1: Ozempic in Costa Rica.
0: Well, I have a dad who's a doctor. That's a whole other story. But the uh, I did not buy Ozempic in Costa Rica, just to be clear. But I do think most people, like you, have to go into that those few minutes you have with your doctor, armed with the right kind of information, right, and say, "Look, like have you considered mm-hmm. this." Uh, and if you don't do that, they're not going to find it for you.
1: That's true. I just think that there will be a market, and and that people will pay a premium for that. Yeah, for sure.
0: For sure. All right. Well, I think that's all we got today. Thank you, everybody. Remember, if you got those Spotify wraps, please post those on your Instagram. You can tag me at Ravi M Gupta. You can tag the branch media. Uh, thank you for listening. Remember also to go on there and give us a strong rating and our voicemails, three two one two zero 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 five seven zero, three two one two zero 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 five zero. See you next week.